Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27 and 28. And I want to begin this morning by reading uh, Matthew 27:57 all the way to 28:15. And I'd love if you could follow along in your Bible with me this morning. This is what Matthew had to say. It says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. If you grew up in the O'Donnell family, there's something that me and my brothers pride ourselves on. Uh, it often gets quite competitive. It's our ability to quote and memorise movie lines. Uh, it gets so um, competitive at times that if you step out and you uh, so boldly begin to uh, quote a particular movie line and you get a part of it wrong, you are then going to be publicly shamed while one of your brothers recites it back to you about how it was actually said. This is a day in the life of the O'Donnell family. And uh, there's a couple of choice films over the years that we have quoted particularly. And I'd say one of them that it might be the number one quoted or it's at least on the podium. Uh, It's the 2003 film called Johnny English. Uh, Johnny English uh, is played by Rowan Atkinson and he is perhaps the most self-assured 
yet atrociously incompetent secret agent in the history of MI7, probably in the history of law enforcement altogether. And uh, throughout this movie, scene after scene, his incompetence plays out. There's uh, a scene towards the, the front of the movie where... Uh, Johnny English and his associate, they're uh, defending or guarding a funeral that's, that's going on. And uh, Johnny English's superior officer comes up to him and says, everything in order, English? And with a kind of smug look on his face, he kind of looks back at him and says, I think you'll find it's rather more than just in order, sir. You're now entering the most secure location in all of England. And a bomb goes off in the background. And this kind of thing goes on right throughout the movie. His incompetence just shows up time and time again. Whatever he's guarding, uh, whatever he's protecting, whatever he's trying to conceal, it always fails. This is what happens to Johnny English. And the same can be said here about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, many people, even in Jesus' day and throughout history, have tried to conceal or debunk or lie about the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And it always fails. I've, uh, I've shared this before uh, during our Acts series, but uh, some time ago in the 18th century, there were two lawyers who got together. They were quite smart fellas. This was Lord Littleton and Gilbert West. And they thought, you know what, there's two hinges on which uh, Christianity hangs. Number one is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and the other one is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we can debunk both of those myths, then we've got Christianity sorted. We'll, we'll, we'll make it a relic of the past. And so what they did is they both wrote respective volumes. One went after the conversion of Saul. One went after the resurrection of Jesus. But what they found is when they came back together, after they'd compiled all the the evidence, these very intelligent, sceptical lawyers ended up writing a volume each proving the historical reliability of each of those accounts. In fact, uh, many people purchased these books and they actually uh, compiled them together as a single volume. The historical reliability of Jesus is legitimate. And so what we're going to see today is we're going to trace the evidence that Matthew gives us here. And what we're also going to see is not only is it a historical reality, but there is great joy on offer for all who would believe this message. And so as we consider this evidence this morning, I want you to keep these words from Timothy Keller in mind. This is what he said about it. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. So let's consider that. Let's keep that in the back of our mind as we enter our passage today. And we pick it up where we began reading in verse 57. And we encounter this man named Joseph. Now, there's a couple of things we need to know about Joseph. First of all, it says that he is a disciple of Jesus. Um, But we've never heard of him before. Um, But what we do know about him uh, from other gospel accounts is not only was he a disciple of Jesus, he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Do you remember the Sanhedrin? These are the the group of 70 men or a percentage of them who put Jesus on trial in the first place and sent him to the cross. He was one of these guys. But he was a silent minority and he did not approve of the execution of Jesus, but he held on to his convictions and didn't voice them. You could say that Peter denied Jesus by his speech Joseph denied him by his silence. But then what happens is, is that Joseph sees his Lord go to the cross and it seems he has this newfound boldness. He no longer wants to be a silent minority and he wants to give Jesus a proper burial. Now, just in those two verses, there's a sermon on boldness just there. But 
what we see there in verse 58, it says that he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, that's a, that's a pretty gutsy move, right? I mean, to, to use a cricketing analogy, that's a very low percentage shot. Um, you have a high chance of getting out there. This is the guy who ultimately approved of the execution of Jesus, and you're going to go ask him for the body. You see, Romans, depending on where the Sabbath landed, but the Romans tended to keep the body on the cross for a little bit. Sometimes they would let wild dogs and birds have their way with the body first, have it as a bit of a sign of warning to say, hey, this could happen to you. It was a mark of shame. So to go to Pilate and ask for the body, that's a risky move. In fact, one commentator says this could be a career-ending move for Joseph. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. What do you think his Sanhedrin buddies are going to think about this? That he is moving his loyalties toward Jesus to give him a proper burial. Now, there's another thing to consider here. Pilate would have never have given Joseph the body if he was not convinced that he was dead. Can you imagine that getting to Caesar's ears? Imagine that. Pilate, the governor of Judea, puts a man to the cross and he escapes the cross somehow. How do you think that would land? Do you think there might be some consequences for Pilate? Absolutely. Pilate would never have given him a body that wasn't dead. Jesus was dead. He was not in need of the ICU. Jesus was dead. And so Joseph, who had to take the body down uh, from the cross himself, prepares this um, tomb for Jesus. And we get a description of this tomb in verse 60. And this is key to this passage. It says that it, it was his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. Now, those are significant words. You see, Jewish tombs in that day, um, had multiple rooms. Uh, you, they, were, they were quite large, so you could fit multiple bodies into a Jewish tomb. But if you were executed as a criminal, no Jew would let you share a tomb with somebody else. No, you were a condemned criminal. So there was no way that there was any other body in this tomb with Jesus. He was in there alone. Furthermore, it says that it was his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. Now, most Jewish tombs were underground tombs, right? They were kind of like your, you know, uh, economy class jet star tombs. That's what most people were buried in. But it says this was a rock tomb. This is like an Emirates first class burial that Jesus has here. And the point I'm making is that Jesus had a very distinct tomb. You couldn't mix it up with just any old tomb. This was a very distinct one. And so with the two Marys watching, probably with tears still in their eyes, he closes the entrance to the tomb. Jesus, the Lord of glory, was dead and buried. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. We, if you read, um, if you dabble in a bit of theology, you'll know that there's been a lot of ink spilt on the theological significance of the death of Jesus and on the resurrection of Jesus. But what about the burial? It's kind of like a... Um, has a bit of a middle child syndrome. It doesn't seem to get as much attention by the theological writers. What about the burial? What do we do with this? That Jesus was in the tomb, right? Um, commentators, don't let you just skip over this fact. Jesus was buried. Think of the way Paul picks up this language in Romans 6.4. This is what he says. He says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness 
of life. And Paul goes on in the next verse to talk about how we're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. But Paul's saying that we're united with him in his burial also. So Christian, let that be, just as a quick thought out of this text, let that be sin conquering fuel for you today as we wage war on sin. Consider that we're not only dead to sin, we're, we're dead and buried to it. It's, that's the old life in the grave. That's, that's not to preach perfectionism, but it is to say that is fuel for our war on sin. So here's Jesus, dead and buried. But despite this reality, all was still not well in Jerusalem. There was a little bit of jittering going on in Jerusalem. The, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they were, they were starting to recall some of the things that Jesus said while he was still alive. And I think it was haunting them a little bit. After three days... I will rise. Now, there's, there's two ways you can interpret uh, their actions there in verse 64 as they approach Pilate. Number one, you can take them at their word, that they didn't think he would rise from the dead, that they genuinely think he's an imposter, that um, they're just covering their bases, they didn't want a revolution to start. Let's just make sure the body doesn't get stolen and, yeah, we're just covering our bases here. That's one way you can interpret it and I think it'd be very sound to do so. But the other way you can look at this is to say... These Pharisees, they're sweating in their boots. Have a think about some of the things they had seen Jesus do over the years. This is a man who they had seen bring sight to the blind, cast out demons. And then in John 11, uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And then just think about what happened on Friday. The, The temple curtain was torn and priests were there when that went on. Do you think the rumors may have started to spread? Do you think the chief priests and Pharisees had gotten word that something happened on Friday? I I tend to think that these Pharisees aren't just covering their bases. I think they're sweating in their boots. I think they are anticipating that something miraculous might actually happen. So whichever option you take on that, their actions are the same. They did everything they could to secure that tomb. Number one, they sealed that stone and they doubled the security. They said, right, temple guards, one thing, we're going a Roman soldier. All right. If it's not crim safe, it's not crim safe. That's what they were doing. Okay. They wanted to make sure that that tomb was sealed. And so, had they done enough? Well, then Sunday rolls around, <laughs> and the women rise early to the tomb. But they witness something that they don't expect. Read verse two with me. It says there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. It's hard to know exactly know what it means there, how they became like dead men. I was actually uh, consulting with a, a doctor friend of Alice and I's last night. And we were trying to figure out a medical explanation. Does this happen? Can you have some sort of fear-induced paralysis? Is that what's going on here? It's, it's quite difficult, but plain and simply, these hard, tough soldiers saw a bigger soldier. They saw an angel of the Lord and they were petrified, out of action. But for the women, they have a different response. Yes, it it began with fear, but the text says it led to great joy. (laughs) And, And the news that the angel brought to them was quite simple. He's not here. Tomb, yeah, it's empty. In fact, come and come and see for yourself. Now, do you 
Do you notice what he's saying there? He, he didn't kind of step in front of the tomb and say, uh, no need to inspect it. Uh, my word is good enough. Uh, in fact, can't you just believe that the tomb is empty? You know, just click your heels together, Dorothy. There's no place like home. Jiminy Cricket, wish upon a star. Like, is that what the angel's saying here? Not at all. <laughs> he says, no, no, no. Come inspect the tomb. See the place where he was laid. He's not here. He's saying, hey, come and inspect the evidence. And the evidence doesn't stop there. Okay, we've got an empty tomb. That's, that's half the picture. Look what happens next. It says, the women begin running to tell the disciples and on their way, they hear the sweetest possible sound ever. Sweeter than any symphony. Greetings. It was the Lord. They saw the risen Jesus. Empty tomb, risen Jesus. It says, they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Now, can I just say something profound at this point? You ready for this? Jesus had feet. What do you know? (laughs) Jesus had feet. Why do I emphasize that? This isn't a ghost story. They saw Jesus in the flesh. The same way Thomas needed to see the wounds in Jesus' hands, these women got to see his feet. This isn't a ghost story. As Doug O'Donnell put it, Christianity is a creed with ten toes. They saw the risen Lord. They were not high on something. This is a legitimate full body resurrection that's going on here. And the evidence is now irrefutable. You see, something, that's something I take personally with great comfort as a Christian, that the Bible never, ever asks you to shy away from the evidence. It says, go and see for yourself. Come and inspect the evidence. Uh, turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Look what Paul has to say about that. Uh, I'm going to read this morning 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, and then 13 through 19, if you want to follow along. This is what Paul said. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, there's that word again, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That's a lot of witnesses. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now read verse 13 to 19. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying if Jesus did not literally rise from the dead, then turn off your live feed right now because Jaden O'Donnell is wasting your time. That's what Paul's saying there. He's saying that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then just go to the fridge, consume as many chocolate bunnies as you can because there's nothing to see here. That's what Paul is saying. You see, 
Paul invites you to inspect the evidence. And part of that evidence is eyewitness testimony, 500 plus, in fact. Now, remember, this is a known tomb. This is an above ground rock tomb of a rich man. Okay, This is not the tomb that you could mistake for anyone else's. Okay, There was not a single author in early church history who said that the tomb wasn't empty. You could go and inspect it for yourself. Everybody knew where it was. And at no point in history did the Romans or the Jews ever produce a dead corpse and say, you want your Jesus? Here he is. They didn't do it. And they didn't because they couldn't. It wasn't there. They could have stopped Christianity in its tracks very quickly. But instead, each of the apostles died horrible martyrs' deaths defending what they had seen to be true. And if, <laughs> if they were defending a hoax, why would they go to such atrocious deaths like crucifixion defending it? What motive did they have? It wasn't beneficial to preach the resur- resurrection for about the first 300 years of Christianity until Constantine came around. It was not a popular idea. And the other thing we need to notice is that who were the first people on scene? that we read in this, in this passage this morning. Women. In the first century, women were not permitted to give their testimony in court. It was considered unreliable. Now, that sounds like fem, you know, feminism uh, issues there uh, that we would perceive in the 21st century, but in the first century, that's how it was. So if you're putting together a hoax, why would you have women be the first on scene? It must have actually happened that way. Now, At some point, someone here would probably want to try and offer some sort of conjecture. Well, look, I know them back then in those olden days, they were kind of naive enough to believe a story like that. We've got all this scientific advancement now, but come on, Jane, you're not fooling me. People don't rise from the dead. That's not a thing. Well, you're suffering from what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery. That is to say, you think you're smarter than people simply because you existed at a later time in history. If anything, the opposite's true most of the time. There's far more intelligence in antiquity a lot of the time. Let me tell you, people in the first century, Jews and Greeks, would have been as sceptical about the resurrection as you were. For different reasons, admittedly. For the Greeks, it was undesirable. If if you could escape your body and and leave it behind as this debased, uh, fleshly uh, thing that you lived in, why would you ever want to crawl back into it? It, just, it was madness to them. Why, if you escaped your body, would you want to come back to it? That's how a Greek would have viewed it. And for a Jew, yes, some of them believed in resurrections, not all of them, but for one individual to be resurrected in the middle of history, no, didn't have a category for that. They believed that all the righteous would be raised together at one time at the end of history, but for one man right in the middle of it, not at all. And the disciples themselves... Think about what we've read in Matthew so far. Jesus could barely get through to them that he was going to die, let alone rise from the dead. Every time Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, it was like bouncing ping pong balls off a brass statue. The the disciples just didn't get it. They were as confused about it as you and I would be. N.T. Wright, theologian, he uh, makes these comments. He says, The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or the sightings of the risen Jesus, nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. 
To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. There was another famous uh, English lawyer, Sir Edward Clarke, and he viewed the evidence of this particular case of Easter Sunday. And here's what he concluded. He said, as a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidences for the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I've secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. As a lawyer, I accept it as the testimony of men to facts that they were able to substantiate. Jesus was alive and he still is. That is the good news of Easter Sunday. The Apostle Peter would later celebrate this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope. That's good news this Easter. Jesus was brought from death to life and so are we if we believe in him. And this is good news to be shared. So that's what he says to them in verse 10. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And little did they know that when they saw Jesus, they would not only be witnesses to the resurrection, they were about to receive the greatest assignment of their life, the Great Commission. And there'll be more on that next week. But before the Great Commission, Matthew gives us what Doug O'Donnell calls the Great Cover-Up Commission. The soldiers who were paralysed you know, with, with fear, they've, they've come to and with some sort of considerable amount of tact, they didn't go straight to Pilate, that probably would have led to their death. So they thought, oh, let's just start with the religious leaders. Let's, let's see where that gets us. And the deal is made with a cover story. And this is their, their grand cover story. Here it is, you ready? His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Sorry? <laughs> um, I've, got, I've got some questions about that. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Pirates of the Caribbean, but there's a scene where uh, there's some inmates in prison and um, they begin to tell the tale about a very evil pirate ship called the Black Pearl. And one of the inmates says, Oh, the Black Pearl. I've heard stories. She's been preying on ships and settlements for near 10 years never leaves any survivors and Jack Sparrow sort of goes no survivors where do the stories come from I wonder the story it just doesn't make any sense and the same could be said here tell me this if you're asleep how do you know it was the disciples did you put those details together boys was that part of your conversation when you came up with a reasonable sum of money like they clearly hadn't thought this through this this story doesn't make a lot of sense if you're asleep, how do you know who stole the body? Do you see the irony of this situation? The measures that the religious leaders took, sealing the tomb and placing a heavy guard, only served to prove the reality of the resurrection. They did everything they could to barricade the truth of the gospel, but that only served to make it explode even further. I loved what Leon Morris said. He said the precautions of his enemies would underline the truth of his resurrection. Further, do you remember what they accused Jesus of being on the front end of this passage? They said he was an imposter and a fraud. Well, let's ask the question, who's being fraudulent now? They are. Do you see the lengths they would go to to protect their own corrupt religious system? And as absurd as this story is, this is a story that spread throughout the Jews for years, not only to the time of Matthew's writing, but into the second century. 
Some of the early church fathers were still fighting off this error and it popped its head up again during the Enlightenment. People will always try and debunk the resurrection, but you can't debunk it because it's just the truth. But you see, this is what we do as fallen, sinful humans. We have selective hearing when it comes to the truth. That's what we do. Apologist uh, Douglas Gruthius said it this way. He said, Truth seems to stand over us like a silent referee, arms folded confidently, ears open, eyes staring intently and authoritatively into everything and missing nothing. Even when an important truth seems out of reach on vital matters, we yearn for it as we yearn for a long-lost friend or the parent we never knew. Yet when the truth unmasks and convicts us and we refuse to return its gaze, we see to banish it in favour of our own self-serving and protective version of reality. This was the folly of, of their unbelief. And it's the folly of our unbelief. This is a historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And let me tell you, that's something you should want to be true. That's not something you want to run away from. You want to run towards it. Like we shared on Friday, the curtain is torn. Jesus conquered sin and death. Because of the finished work of Jesus, you don't have to request an audience with this king. You can run to him as boldly and as often as you like. You can sit on his lap like a child and call him father. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you want that? Do you harbor a fear of death? Death in this life and the next. This is a free gift on offer for all who would receive it. Eternal life. Jesus conquered the grave. So in light of these, this tragic deception that we see here from the religious leaders, one commentator, James Boyce, he asked a series of very pointed questions and I'd like to finish with these. If you're still sceptical, consider these questions. Have you been confronted by the power of Jesus' resurrection or are you still trying to make your life secure against Jesus? Perhaps you have heard of Christ's gospel, but you have been trying to keep Jesus politely in his place. I warn you, Jesus is not that easily contained. You can push him down, but he will crop up again. You can banish him from your thoughts, but he will come back when you least expect him. What are you going to do against the power of the one so many call Lord? How are you going to make yourself secure against Jesus?